0: We're back uh, in the series we've started a while ago on, on Nehemiah, and um, we've seen before now this is a really intriguing time in the history of God's people, because they've been exiled uh, from their promised land, really as God's discipline on them for having wandered away from him and forsaken him for generations. They they lost their land, really, they lost the city of God, the uh, the joy of the whole earth, that's Jerusalem. They were banished. Those that survived scattered throughout other nations. But now there's been this uh, glimmer of hope that God, by his grace, by his favor, has made it possible for Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem uh, all the way from Susa, 800 miles away, where he's been serving the, the emperor of the Persian Empire. Um, God's favor is on him, so he's been able to return to Jerusalem and help the people who are there to restore that city so that it becomes habitable again. So the, the focus has been on rebuilding the walls. And we've seen that taking place in these first few chapters. And what we've also been seeing happen is, whilst God is powerfully at work, uh, there are enemies to God's people who oppose the rebuilding of Jerusalem. They don't want there to be a community based there that is demonstrating what God's kingdom is like. They don't want God's people to be restored whatsoever, um, and so they've been bringing great opposition, uh, trying to discourage God's people. That's what we see happening in chapter six. We've already seen that in chapter four. Chapter five showed us some of the problems that were kicking off within the community of God's people, chapter 6 is another reminder, another painful reminder really, in some ways, that the enemies to God's people are still very much opposed to what's going on. So we're going to read chapter 6, we're going to look at some of these uh, strategies, some of these schemes that the enemies were using, but then show how Nehemiah and the others too were able to overcome them and God's work was not thwarted. So here we go, Nehemiah chapter 6. When word came to Sanballat, Tobiah, Geshem the Arab, and the rest of our enemies that I had rebuilt the wall and not a gap was left in it, though up to that time I had not set the doors in the gates, Sanbalat and Geshem sent me this message: "Come, let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono." But they were scheming to harm me, so I sent messengers to them with this reply. I am carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Four times they sent me the same message. And each time I gave them the same answer. Then the fifth time, Sambalat sent his aid to me with the same message. And in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you and the Jews are plotting to revolt. And therefore you're building the wall. Moreover, according to these reports, you are about to become king and have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation about you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. Now this report will get back to the king. So come, let us confer together. I sent him this reply. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your own head. They were all trying to frighten us, thinking their hands will get too weak for the work and it will not be completed. But I prayed, now strengthen my hands. One day, I went to the house of Shemaiah, son of Deliah, the son of Mehetabel, who was shut in at his home. He said, let us meet in the house of God, inside the temple. Let us close the temple doors because men are coming to kill you. By night, they're coming to kill you. But I said, Should a man like me run away or should one like me go into the temple to save his life? I will not go. I realized that God had not sent him, but that he had prophesied against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. He had been hired to intimidate me so that I would commit a sin by doing this. And then they would give me a bad name to discredit me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, oh my God. Because of what they've done, remember also the prophetess Nadiah and the rest of the prophets who've been trying to intimidate me. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. When all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they'd realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. Also in those days the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them, for many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was son in law to Shechaniah, son of Arah, and his son Jehohan was married uh, married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Moreover, they kept reporting to me his good deeds, and then telling him what I said, and Tobiah sent letters to intimidate me. So here we have it in chapter six, a fair way through uh, the story, the account of what happens. not only obviously in Nehemiah's life, uh, we're getting a glimpse into that with his memoirs, but we're really seeing what's going on in God's people and there's been this, this time of new beginning, this time of new excitement really, new faith and um, seeing God at work and really putting their hands to that and they, uh, initially they, they kind of connect the, the, the wall was rebuilt to half its height and we saw at that stage that opposition was, was starting to come now we see that the wall has been rebuilt the job is almost done this is almost complete the only thing that hasn't happened yet there's no gap left in the wall at all the wall is at the right height but the only thing that hasn't happened yet is that the doors haven't been put in place so the gates haven't been made secure um, but they're almost over the finish line. But this, therefore, represents the opposition, the enemy. It represents their last opportunity to try and thwart the work before they need to just lay siege to a city. So that would be the way, typically, if a city was was well built with walls, in order to overthrow that city, in order to do it damage, you had to lay siege to it. You had to put siege works up. And maybe for days and days, for months, um, you would be attempting to uh, really starve the people who are inside the city and uh, demolish the wall. But that would be hard graft. So this is their last opportunity to try and thwart uh, the plans um, uh, to restore this city um, before that point is reached. And what we see really in this chapter, therefore, is that enemies of God are incredibly persistent. We also see in this chapter they're incredibly subtle. They're cunning they're crafting they're crafty they they're scheming we've seen before fairly kind of blunt um blatant attempts to discourage them uh, with taunts and ridicule and uh, and threats we're going to we're going to come we're going to start we're going to stir up trouble against all of God's people now it's much more subtle but it's increasingly intense the enemy is increasingly desperate god's people therefore need to be increasingly uh, savvy and, uh, and and kind of understand what these schemes are like. We also see now in chapter six that not only is it incredibly persistent and subtle, this time it's also personal. They are after Nehemiah. They're not taunting and threatening the people generally. They realise our way to try and stop progress in the city of God is to go for Nehemiah. If in some way we can intimidate him, if in some way we can threaten him, if in some way we might be able to kidnap him or do him harm, or if we can't manage that just to discredit him in the eyes of people who are doing the work, then we will gain the upper hand, we will be in control, and we will be able to thwart the plans for God's city. So it's intensely personal. They are after him. And uh, that's what we see um, in this uh, this chapter. Two Corinthians two, verse uh, eleven, it, Paul reminds us there, in a context of making sure that we forgive one another um, when someone uh, has maybe caused trouble in the life of the church, and uh, they then repent. Said, well, make sure that you kind of draw them back in, that you that you welcome them, that you restore them, that you forgive them. Uh, why is that? Well, he says. In verse 11, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. They're, they're subtle. They're crafty. They're not always obvious. So we have to be on our guard. Paul says, you know, we're not unaware of his schemes, which I suppose raises the question. Are we aware of the sorts of schemes that our enemy, not other people, but satan and spiritual forces that are opposed to god are we aware of what some of those schemes are they can seem very obvious at times um, in certain parts of the world and maybe even for some of us here may have ex- experienced definite persecution um, in the workplace or elsewhere definite ridicule taunting being mocked For your faith you might have been on the receiving end of that it's fairly blunt. It's fairly obvious. It's obviously unpleasant and it and it and it carries a a weight with it Um, But there are other schemes that the enemy tries here in chapter 6 and so we're going to look at a few of them but always bearing in mind that God wants to equip us And teach us that we might not be unaware of his schemes, but we also we might be aware yet we've got an enemy who is subtle, but we have a God who is in every situation, in every trial, he is sufficient, he is enough. And he enables us, he enables Nehemiah to stand against these schemes and the work is completed. It's it's a wonderful kind of masterstroke of understatement when we, we read through all of these uh, different schemes, different tactics that the enemy is employing. And then we read in verse 15, So the wall was completed. That's where this is all heading. God is sufficient. Nehemiah knows that. Uh, Nehemiah stands on his convictions. He's not unaware of these schemes. And so the work continues um, unabated. But let's have a look at what some of these schemes are. Okay, first up is distraction. We see here with uh in particular, the early verses of the chapter, that he's attempting to distract Nehemiah from the work. How does he do this? Well, he does it by sending letters. Um, with Geshem 2 uh, sent messages uh, to Nehemiah, come let us meet together in one of the villages on the plain of Ono. And um, that sounds like maybe a reasonable request. Sambala is a governor of another district up in Samaria. Uh, now he's opposed the work of God beforehand, but maybe now, when the work is almost complete, he's kind of seeing, well, okay, maybe I was wrong about this. Uh, maybe we can we can work at this together. Maybe this is a reasonable request. Maybe maybe this is an offer of help. Maybe this is an opportunity. Nehemiah could be tempted to think But this guy, even though he was dead opposed to us before, maybe now he's seen the light, and uh, he wants in in some way. He's got some support. That he can bring. This is maybe a new opportunity. Um, now that the city walls are almost built. Nehemiah could be thinking. Well as governor of this city. I, I guess it's natural that I'll have. A kind of new influence. New profile. New opportunities to share what God's kingdom is about. And, and therefore maybe I would be a fool. To miss this opportunity. To mix with someone else who's quite influential. And uh, maybe this is just a door opening. Well. Maybe, but clearly not. I think the clue was in the the location. The location was kind of halfway between Jerusalem and Samaria. So in effect, uh, what Sambalat is saying is is come and meet me Meet me halfway. Leave Jerusalem, come out of the city. I'll come towards you, we'll we'll meet. That was actually kind of dangerous territory, right at the edge of the province of Judah uh, and the edge of of the province of Samaria and Ashdod. So uh, traditional enemies of God's people, so, trying to lure him out of safety, really. I think the clue was in the name. Oh no. Uh, don't go there. Um, what would have happened if he'd said, why yes? Uh, why don't you come to the plane of why yes? what um, would he have been lured? No. Nehemiah smells a rat. Now how does he, how does he do that? He recognizes this is a distraction. This is not some opportunity to kind of soothe my ego, uh, a new profile in the region. This is just plainly a distraction. He sees it clearly because he says, um, I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Verse three, uh, why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Now, Nehemiah can sometimes come across as a tad arrogance. So when it says that, I am carrying on a great project, it sounds a bit grandiose, doesn't it? But the the emphasis of the greatness is on the project, which is what God has been orchestrating and bringing about. God has brought this about. God's hand is on us. God's favor is here. This is not about me being in a great position. This is about God's got important work. This is an important work that God has called me to. So if I'm to leave it, if I was to go and meet with you um, over in the plain of Ono, then um, then... The work itself, the important work that God has called me and called others to is going to be uh, neglected. So he sees it as a uh, distraction. And um, he was about a great work. Now, there's another ruler um, in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, King David uh, was about a great work in leading the people. Now, well, he should have been about a great work. In 2 Samuel 11 verse 1, we, we find out there that kind of in the season when kings go to war, King David this time has decided to stay at home. And so he's just wandering around, idle, doesn't really have anything to do. Um, he's decided not to go up to battle. He sent other people to do, to do that hard, important work this time. And so he's easily distracted by, by somebody he sees, Bathsheba. And I uh, think, well, maybe I'll just go halfway. I won't go all the way. I'll just go halfway. I'll go and meet with her. I'll go and talk with her because she's really attractive. And uh, I, David, you're already married. David, she's already married. Don't go halfway. Don't go all the way. But you put yourself in a position where you can get distracted. And that's really what the enemy wants to do. Bring distraction. If he can get us to kind of put down the work of God, if he can get us to to not see it as great or important now, then... We're 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 easily more easily distracted. Um, So God's got great work for Nehemiah. He sees this therefore as a temptation to compromise. We have similar temptations, and the enemy won't start kind of by saying, "Come all the way." He'll just be whispering in thoughts, "Just just meet me halfway. Come come here. You know you 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 probably can look at that. It's okay. Other people might. Yeah, it's not great, um, but." Just, just go halfway. Go, go some of the way. Compromise, just a little bit. But then we get drawn further on. We get drawn further in. That's what sin does. It's, it's enticing. We, it, it picks on something that we desire. And well, I, God's called me to this, but I, I'm, I'm enticed by something else. Um, that's what could have happened uh, to Nehemiah. Just being enticed out of the purposes of God. No, this might look like just putting bricks in a wall. But God has called me to be a bricklayer, not to be some grand statesman um, kind of re- receiving that kind of hospitality. No, I'm, I'm giving myself to what God has called me to do. Again, it's it's subtle and sometimes just seemingly small choices can lead us, can lure us away. Um, but really, through this passage, I think what God is saying, let's pursue... What God has said and made clear. Let's, let's pursue what God has purposed for His church. It might feel at times tremendously mundane, rather like, um, just getting a heap of rubble brick by brick, stone by stone and setting it in place. But God wants a people who are not easily distracted, and who are running kind of hard towards the finish line. Um, there are some athletes and in some races, I don't know if uh, Olympics or in other, uh, other occasions, there are those moments when someone has been doing tremendously well for lap after lap of this race. They've been heading the field, and uh, maybe it's a qualifier, it's not quite the final yet, and they they kind of, the, the bell goes, they do the final lap, they then get to the final bend and they're heading down the straight. And uh, most of the opposition, most of the other runners, they're, they're, they're way back. Uh, they're not going to catch him or her. And so running towards the line, maybe just 10 meters to go. Think, ah, oh, Well, I'll, I'll just take it easy right now. I've, I've made it. But other people aren't taking it easy. Other people are, are really going for it. And you find, oh, they're on the line. They were pipped by two or three other people and they didn't qualify. They think, oh, yeah, it's it's good to run and, and run strongly. We want to be those who keep running right to the very end. And uh, there's a book on my shelf, and I think it's on the bookshop downstairs too, called Leaders Who Last. And on the cover, it makes the point. And it's possibly research in, in, in America rather than the, in the UK, but it's making a powerful point which could well easily be statistically true here as well that of those in Christian leadership, only 30% make it. Only 30% kind of are strongly crossing the line. Others stumble and fall, trip, or get disqualified in some way. I don't know if anyone's a fan of athletics. If you are, you might know the name. Uh, Christine Holt. Oh- yeah, some of you know her. That's great. Uh, just as well. Um, she's renowned. She is... Um, she won the gold medal in the 2008 Olympics. I think she's world champion, possibly at the moment, or certainly she has been recently, uh, in the 400-meter hurdles. And you watch a race that Christine runs, and for like three quarters of it, she's she just looks like she's making up the numbers. Uh, she's running around. There's no great massive speed at the, at the gun. She doesn't kind of like um, break away at the outset and build up a substantial lead. She's just going round. She's just getting over the hurdles, techniques okay, others will be dashing ahead. But you know, when it gets to the final straight, that she might be way back, but actually she's still in contention because her stamina kicks in. She has this awesome kind of like straight line burst. So on the home straight, she is just hunting them down and then she, she gets over the line. She, this incredible determination, I'm going to run well. I'm going to do this. I'm not going to allow myself to think I've, I've, I've already succeeded and then find uh, I've, I've tripped up or I've been caught, I've been disqualified. She runs, she runs well, she runs hard, even whilst she looks like she's just making up the numbers for a lot of the time. And sometimes doing what God has called us to do can just have the appearance of, well, in a sense, I'm just making up the numbers. I'm, it's essentially, it's mundane. There's no great song and dance. Um, I'm, I'm just faithfully going around the track. Or I'm just faithfully grabbing a, a stone and putting it into the wall. Nehemiah could have thought at this point, the job's almost done. I'm going to take a break. I'm going to go to the plane of, oh no. No, don't do that. No, the job's almost done, so keep going. And uh, sometimes for us, living a Christian, it can just feel a bit mundane. I wonder how it feels for no offence to people in a core group, but for core group leaders, it can just feel like we're we're just we're, we're going around the track, and uh, sometimes it can just feel a bit mundane. And and if if we kind of give way to that sort of thinking, we can get distracted from actually something that is significant. No, this is like you are in a wonderful position to help other bricks, as it were, to stick in and find their place and kind of be joined together and be shoulder to shoulder so there's this there's this context of of, of uh, 10 12 people meeting midweek and other times as well just in touch with one another bringing encouragements knowing that when something's tough there are people there who can uh, encourage and so on it can just seem that's just ordinary it's not important it's it's, it's wonderfully it's wonderfully important and uh, I want to just commend those that that do that week in week out just Helping other people be in community, be in fellowship, and be encouraged in their faith. But for others of us, we might think, well, I, I can see that Nehemiah is about a great work. He's the governor of the city. He's really the, the leader who's orchestrating this whole massive project. I can see that he is about a great work. I can see that King David should have been about a great work because he was king. He led the people. He he was to lead them into battle. Other uh, other men, other kind of warriors would, would gather to him. He would lead them into campaign. And uh, God had given him that profile, that prominence, that responsibility to shepherd God's people, high-profile leader about a great work. And so here we are. It's personal, but it's just personal for Nehemiah, isn't it? What has this got to do with me? Because what I'm doing is not great work. I'm not able to be in full-time ministry for Jesus. I've, I've got a secular job. That doesn't allow me uh, to give my time in the same way to quite as many different activities that might be going on. It might mean that my sphere of leadership is, is not primarily within the church. It's primarily within the workplace. So I can see how others... yet. Yeah, They're doing something significant, um, but it's not great work for me. I think, well, that is just the enemy's trick to try and make the Christian life appear as if it's just for a few individuals to do the stuff and the rest of us sit and watch. So in Colossians 3, uh, Paul is, is writing there, um, he's actually writing to, to slaves. Slaves obey your earthly masters and so on. But in verse 23 of Colossians 3, he writes there: Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. This kind of great reminder, this great commendation, you might just feel like you're a slave even, and you're not the boss. You're not the master. Uh, you're under someone else's line management, or whatever, and uh, and and God's encouragement is still reckon on this: that you are, because you're in Jesus, because He's chosen and appointed you to bear much fruit, whatever your occupation is. Uh, then know this: you are about a great work. Now, others might say, "But I'm not in paid employment. I'm a mother of three children." So I can see how people who work in the church, full-time ministry in some capacity. I can see how others um, in different spheres, maybe it's education, maybe it's medicine, maybe it's business. I can see how there are others that God raises up and puts in position of profile and influence. I can see how they're about a great work. But I'm at home. And I'm, yeah, I made the decision. I'm, I'm focusing on raising my children, I've not got time to do a great work, therefore. Um, and sometimes I feel the pressure of it, and I feel, what, what will other people think of me? Um, that I'm, This is what I'm giving my, my, my time to. Uh, and the world doesn't really um, consider that a great use of time. Because raising children, uh, particularly in the, the younger little years really goes by another name, another phrase. It goes by the phrase, giving up your career. And so the value is placed on the career. So, oh, you're, you're not going back to work. Why Why, why give up that talent? Why, why give up that ability that you've got? You could be of influence here. Don't you understand? It's crying out for people with experience and maturity uh, that, that you've got from the work that you've done. So focusing on the children. Well, you can pay other people to do that, you know. And they'll change nappies. And they'll give them food and they'll help them have a nap and so on. Enabling you to be about a great work. And uh, I'm kind of not bringing attention to that in order to, to condemn mothers that are in employment as well as raising children. It's just an opportunity to make the point because in the world you'll never hear that. You'll never hear in the world, you are about a great work, if you're raising your children. You'll just get the impression one way or another, again, it's subtle, that you're not about a great work. Therefore, you could just get distracted, here, there, and everywhere, oh, you know, and, and a bit stressed with it as well. I wonder, there's a, uh, there's a mother of three in the Bible, and um, her name was Jochebed, and she was about a great work, because she was entrusted with raising miriam aaron and moses and she raised them and she was about a great work and in different ways then in their future they were released uh, to be about a great work now again w- even right there the mindset of the world can kick in and so, "Well, you're just living through your children then aren't you um you're just making the sandwiches and the packed lunch to enable them to go and have fun and be of importance somewhere and get an education and all the rest of it well Well, no, we've just got to resist worldly thinking. This is subtle stuff, but it can draw us away from actually the call of God. And even sometimes, goodness me, this is point number one. We'll have to come back to this another time, won't we? Um, (laughs) um, There were four, but I think that's kind of slowly uh, (laughs) dropping down. Um, Where was I? Um. We've just got to re- resist these subtle distractions from what God has said is a great work. And now maybe I'm stretching it a little bit. But Nehemiah could have been led to think, "Ah, oh, there's this new opportunity. There's, I, I could have more profile if I go there. And if I do that, and in just a small way, I've experienced this because every now and again, I now get posts that I never used to. Thankfully, it doesn't say yet reverend uh daniel Mayton, because that's not what i am um, but the sort of things that come our way that, that come the way of a lead elder would you would you come come to this come to this event come to this occasion and uh, mix with other um, leaders church leaders and it's not to dismiss the invita- you know the, the invitation of what's going on but it can do something in my own heart's because yeah i can see that I need to go and be of influence somewhere. And actually, no, I don't. I need to give myself to putting some stones in the wall and not get carried away with any grandiose thoughts. Now, God can sometimes raise people up into positions of profile and influence. We can bet your bottom dollar then he's He's done a lot of investing so far in character, 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 character. You invest in your character and let God then bring about what he wants to bring about. Otherwise, we just get distracted and we get drawn aside and the work stops. The stuff that God has in mind that doesn't look very impressive in the world's eyes just gets dropped. Um, So let's just look in in concluding. (laughs) Point number one. This is not just about Nehemiah. We are seeing that there is a, a, a personal attack upon him I think sometimes we can use that language can't we I, I'm under spiritual attack and we use it as if something strange and unusual is happening of course we are of course this is happening of course it's always happening at some stage in different ways it might vary but the enemy's got these subtle means that he'll use to try and uh, detract and, and distract our attention Um, But this is not just about Nehemiah. This is not just about a few chosen people who've got significance. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse uh, 27, we're told, You are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Whatever your specific occupation, whatever sphere of influence, circle of friends you might have, whatever energy levels you have at the end of a busy day or whatever, No, you you are a part of this and a part of a great work. What is the great work? Living and demonstrating that the kingdom of God is different to the kingdom of the world. And we want to see this, if you like, a secure city with proper foundations and solid walls established. So that when people encounter you and when people encounter me... I think there's something different. There's something distinctive about you. There's something distinctive about this community that you're a part of. You see, that was the problem for Jerusalem. It was not distinct. The walls were broken down. There's little difference between being inside the city or being outside the city. Because it wasn't distinct. It wasn't secure. It wasn't built up. It wasn't established. God wants to establish something so that he can then kind of demonstrate and show it to the world. It is distinct, it is different, and come and be a part of it. Come and be a part of God's people. We will look at one more tactic and save the other two for another time. Um, The second one is accusation. Thankfully, uh, Nehemiah kicks those messages into touch that come from Sambalat. They come four times. He is persistent. Each time it gets the same response. I'm carrying on a great project and cannot go down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you? Then secondly, we see that another tactic come in, but by the same guy. Then the fifth time, Sam Balat sent his A to me with the same message, but in it as well was an unseal, in his hand was an unsealed letter in which was written. It is reported Among the nations, and Geshem says it's true, that you're up to no good. You're planning a revolt. Uh, You want to be king. And this news is going to get back to the emperor in Susa, and he's going to have you, and all of this is going to come to an end. You'll see. That's, That's kind of what's behind it. It's actually still subtle, because it's almost still presented... In the guise of friendship. Now, this report will get back to the king. So come, let us confer together. I just want to talk. Just want to meet with you. Let's, let's, let's talk about what's going on. People are, kind of news is spreading that uh, really your motives aren't quite right. And the plans that you've got, they need addressing. But maybe we can talk about this. So it's still subtle, but it's, it's up to no good. So it's a, It's, it's subtle in that, it's reported among the nations. Oh yeah, by who? It's just this subtle, well, I'm not the only person who says this. Uh, there are others, you know. Oh yeah, who? I know, I couldn't possibly tell you. Yeah, yeah, we're just talking about you then. Um, and Geshem says it's true. Geshem, his name is supposed to pack a punch. He's not got quite the same uh, prominence in this letter as Sambalat and Tobiah, but he's more powerful. Um, he's, I think, the, the 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 governor of a larger district. So it's like these guys are saying, yeah, and we're, we're referring to this higher authority, and Geshem says it's true. So if Geshem says it's true, and it's in this letter, and it's reported very vaguely among the nations, if this gets back to the emperor, you're in trouble. And that's what happened before, actually, uh, in the time of Ezra, A letter went back to the king. Even though the king had said, yes, fine, go for it. A letter came back to the king saying, they're up to no good. And the emperor put a stop to it. So this progress was made in Ezra's day. But then it stopped all because of a letter uh, that went back to the emperor. So this does, this is subtle, but it carries a serious threat. It's subtle. I mean, notice even how Sambalak clearly knows the scripture He clearly knows um, how the Jews conducted things. So he says, you know, you have even appointed prophets to make this proclamation. He knows how things are supposed to be done. He's able to kind of sow in these half-truths, take a bit of scripture even and mix it in with the accusation uh, to make it sound more plausible. Um, So again, it's it's subtle, but it's serious. And the letter's unsealed which means that basically en route, anybody could read or be shown the contents of this letter. In other words, this letter that Sambalat has said is is basically public property. Um, The news is out there. We've been spreading this report. So thinly guised as as friendship, but make make no mistake, this guy is uh, a foe. And it's an attack... An accusation, we've looked at that before, but this particular accusation, this particular strategy is to do with your motives aren't right, Nehemiah. This isn't about the city. This isn't isn't about what God wants to do. This is about you and your reputation and the position that you want for yourself. You want to be the king. You want to be the king of Jerusalem. You want to have other people heralding you. So how is Nehemiah going to handle that accusation. It's a particularly nasty and powerful accusation. If you have ever felt falsely accused of something, you will know what it is to have a sense of injustice just bubbling up within you. How dare they say that about me? They don't know what's in my heart. They're they're, they're kind of seeing something and they're presuming... um, Rather like kind of Hannah was saying earlier on, they're, they're, they're kind of presuming false motives. So if you dare step out in some new way, if you dare come to the front and have a chat with whoever's leading the meeting and just then share something with the congregation, a testimony, or if you do that, you open yourself up. Well, of course, those are the people who are quite comfortable and would quite like a bit of profile. They would like to be thanked afterwards. Um... Uh, and can you see how that, that can just, it's a subtle thing, but that, that frame of mind, that, that thinking, that kind of accusation can just get in there. What happens is potentially then a temptation to one of two things. If we feel falsely accused that our motives are brought into question and it's out there somewhere, do you know what they're really like? Well, I'll tell you some stuff and it's reported by somebody else. Um, it's all just hearsay. Uh, in, the, in this situation, but the temptation can go one of two ways. With this bubbling up injustice, the temptation is, quick, defend yourself. This is so upsetting, so kind of all-consuming, I've got to get this off my chest. If there wasn't a problem, there probably would appear to be one now, whilst I have a go back. Or um, in the nicest possible way even, spend a lot of time trying to, um, to defend myself and make it abundantly clear. Now that's not my motive, that's not my, my heart. And so in this situation, Nehemiah could have rushed to his own defense. He could have gone to confer with Sambalat in order to put him right. So you know you've got it entirely wrong. He could have written his own unsealed letter and start kind of uh, sending that around uh, the province just to make sure no one's under any false impressions. I'm, this is not about being about me being king. That's not where this is coming from. Uh this is what God has said. This is why I'm doing it. Bloody blah, bloody blah, blah, blah. Uh in the process a lot of time has got lost. Um and the great work again it's a it's a a way of of being distracted. Um, so, how do we consider unjust criticism or uh, accusations where our motives are brought into question? Do we kind of, are we tempted into defending ourselves? Now, perhaps the first thing to do, even if we are on the receiving end of something like that, which is clearly malicious, it's not well intended, is still actually first of all to consider, actually, before you, O oh God... Is there something that I do need to give my attention to within this? That It might be completely, um, like I say, malicious and just out to harm and damage. That The motives of the person doing the criticizing might not be great. Nevertheless, is there something in this? So Nehemiah knows this is just totally the wrong end of the stick. He might just personally and privately be pondering, but have, have I made this about me? in some way. Do I quite like the prominence and the prestige which goes with with governor or what have you? I've, I'm going to use this as an opportunity. Not because God wants to disqualify me from doing something, but I'm just going to use this as an opportunity to guard my own heart against what this criticism might be pointing at. It's all about you. It's about your profile and so on. Right, he uses the opportunity to, to take stock perhaps. But I think his response is just... Brilliant. He sees it for what it is, and he sent this reply in verse 8. Nothing like what you are saying is happening. You are just making it up out of your own head. He just does not, in that sense, entertain it. He doesn't allow it to distract him from what God has called him to do. That takes incredible to be commended Trust in God. He trusted in God. Because he, this was not in his hands. This was not in his control. That letter could easily have just been sent back to the emperor. The emperor takes it on board. The emperor stops the work. Every, there could have been any, any number of emotions in him saying panic stations, panic stations. And yet he said, no, I'm going to, I'm going to trust this to God. I wonder if he was encouraged uh, by the words of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 35. Uh, where we read there. Um, Nehemiah saying in, in chapter 35 verse 3. Strengthen the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts. Be strong. Do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution. He will come to save you. That prayer those verses are not encouraging us to get angsty with other people. They're encouraging us to have peace, have faith, trust God, put this in God's hand. And so what we say Nehemiah doing is praying, Well, responding, kicking it into touch, denying the reports, praying, God, come and strengthen my hands, cracking on with what he's got from God to do. He's not getting distracted by it. We could look at the other tactics, but I don't think we will this time. It's interesting, again, just going back to Hannah's word earlier on about how we can be so concerned, so worried about what will people think of me in the life of the church. We can be so concerned with how will it come across if I having been to the Discover course or not, step out in a new way or in a spiritual gift of some sort? Will people just presume that I'm getting above my station? Those thoughts, those accusations, they might not be there in reality from other people's perspective, but we're kind of that's what we're dwelling on. That's what we're pondering all the time. What will people think? Of me, will they just think I'm an upstart? Uh, will they think that uh, I, I'm thinking more highly of myself than I should? And again, if if that thought pattern is allowed to develop momentum, then what happens is we just get distracted, and we don't follow through, and the work gets set aside, and we might not be attempting to defend ourselves particularly. Instead, we might just be giving into the temptation to think, that's it, I'm soft peddling. The work's almost done, things are going okay, I can see what God's got, and God's uh, doing things in others, but I I don't have a part to play, so I'm, I'm kind of sitting myself on the fence. We need to be a people who are trusting in God, and actually that as a church... We are giving no opportunity for others to assume that that's what we might be thinking. Oh, their motives are wrong or whatever. And that can afflict kind of any one of us. It's almost taking that decision to spur one another on. Now, feedback is our friend. Someone coming and saying to us, thank you for what you brought... But a feedback that is constructive. Don't, let's not go down the pan. That's almost a sign of encouragement. Do this again. Do it. I, it was so helpful what you brought. Go for it again. When you do go for it again, just consider this bit here. There might be something that you can learn. There might be something that you can develop. There might be some way in which you can, uh, kind of strengthen or encourage people more. What have you. So feedback is friendly. Um, and is is good. But what we need to guard our hearts from is that just sense of, I, I, I will sit back and I, I will not really participate. I'll not really expect that my contribution is valid. Because that is just an enemy tactic to distract us from the work. So we've seen in a couple of ways at least that the enemy is subtle. Enemy is persistence. In this great work that God has called Nehemiah and the people to, there are many challenges and temptations. The word that crops up throughout this chapter is intimidate or frighten. That's what the enemy is trying to do, trying to intimidate and frighten. But like we mentioned earlier on, because Nehemiah was able to not be outwitted by these schemes, but to overcome them, trusting in God and being fully persuaded of the great work that God had called him to be a part of, he persevered. He was like Christine, a horror goo. Yeah? Um, just running hard for the line, not easily distracted, not easily tripped up in what God has called him to. It's not always glamorous, it's not always high profile, but bricks into the wall is it was such an important thing then and now as well. God can be trusted he 's got a part for each and every one of us to play let 's be convinced of that uh, let 's remind one another of these things so that with god 's help, as it were for us, the, the wall is completed. I love the way in which Sambalat, Toba, and Geshem have put so much effort into gathering people around, gathering the nations, gathering people to say, "Look." And to, to kind of pour on scorn and to try and discourage. And then when the wall is completed and the work is done, there are more, almost like all the enemies are gathered to realize, oh, God's helped them. God's done this. And so the enemy appears to be very busy, appears to be, uh, very, uh, persistent. But actually with God's help, enemy loses self-confidence. And the people of God uh, continue. We've got everything we need in God to not be outwitted by his schemes. Let's make that our aim. We need to be savvy to these things so that we persevere, so that we press on, so that we say, yeah, it's not that I'm great, but the work of God through his church, through his people is great. Let's keep going for it. Even if we feel like we're close to the line, even if we feel we're close to completion, whenever that might be, let's keep running hard, let's keep persevering, in Jesus' name.